0: Glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Well, greetings and salutations from the great state of Alabama, hope everybody had a great Lord's Day and had the opportunity to go and worship the Lord at a church near you. And as always, if you're not involved in a church near you, find one. Uh, if you're in a Elmore County area near Tallahassee, you can find us at Friendship Baptist Church over in Tallahassee, we we'll we meet every Sunday, nine thirty for Sunday School and ten thirty for worship. You are invited to come and join us. And so tonight we'll continue our uh, series through the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be chapter 5. We'll finish it up. Verses 8 through 20 is our text uh, for today, where Solomon goes back and joins in again with this idea of uh, wealth and honor and the vanity of it. And so we're obviously... Broadcasting the Facebook live and broadcasting the YouTube right now, and it's going to be recorded for the podcast. so go find me on YouTube, like subscribe, share, leave, uh, leave a, a good uh, review and the same thing on the podcast wherever you find podcasts, go like, share, subscribe, leave a good uh, review and let's continue to increase the audience there. Just a reminder, as you see the ticker on the bottom of the screen, uh, just a few weeks we're going to have revival service at Friendship Baptist Church. I'm going to be November the 5th through the 8th, so I would encourage you uh, to put that on your calendar. It'll be at 7 o'clock each night, starting Sunday night, Sunday through Wednesday, so join us for that revival. Invite your friends and your family to come join us um, as well. I'll be preaching Sunday night, uh, and Jay Penton's going to preach Monday and Tuesday, and then my good friend from Dothan, Alabama. Uh, Donald Irwin will be preaching on Wednesday, Uh, and then we're going to have some special music from um, Denise and Candace will be leading some, and then we'll have uh, Gabe and my girls will be leading, and I think Angel might join uh, Denise on one of those nights as well, so it'll be a lot of fun, and just pray that the Lord will bring revival to our church, bring revival to our community, and we'll see souls saved uh, in light of this event. And so let's get into Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're just going to take a verse at a time and, and talk about it. It's not really a new subject that Solomon or the preacher, Koheleth, the assembler, Has bringing to us today is really a topic that he's dealt with at least a couple of times in Ecclesiastes, but it's a topic that is well worth our continued thought and uh, consideration as it relates to the issue of finding value and worth and meaning in life. And the reality, again, that Solomon is trying to accomplish in Ecclesiastes, it seems morbid, it seems like, hey, there's no hope, there's no use, but just remember, he's trying to get us to answer this question, how we truly find meaning and value in life, and he's trying to drive us to a particular conclusion. That's why he uses this term, under the sun. Under the sun is... a figure of speech that he uses in order to help us understand that if we look at life merely from the standpoint of what happens here on earth and there is no um, uh, eternal life, there is no supernatural aspect to our existence uh, that this is all there is, then it is vanity and it has no true meaning or value and no, no worth uh, to, so to speak of but he's driving us to the conclusion we saw last week. In the passage that uh, we looked at and uh, I think we'll see a little bit again this week in the passage here at the, toward the end. That ultimately the conclusion is that there is a God, and that uh, the only way we find true value and meaning in life is in God. The only way we try to find uh, that the proper way to find value and meaning in our work and our labor and our wealth and in whatever it is uh, is to understand that whatever we do, we do unto the Lord. And so that's really the the conclusion that Solomon is driving to, and he's considering all these other aspects of it. So let's let's get involved uh, uh, with the text again, And, and again this this will start. Starts out with the issue of injustice and it's going to lead to the issue of of wealth. And injustice is not a new topic for Solomon. He's talked about this before. And so in verse 8, he begins, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, and now here's the shocking phrase, because we hey we can look in our culture in our history, as Solomon could look in his world and the world around him and he can see different places in the world where there was injustice and there was violence and there was a lack of righteousness by the leadership and by the people, well, all you got to do is look out in our world today and in the leadership of our world uh, and in the culture of our world in the people of our world, uh, we see, and when I say our world, I'm including our American world as well. Uh, we see that there are there is oppression, there is injustice, there is violence, there is unrighteousness uh, in this world, so this is not something that we 're unfamiliar with. It is something that is relevant to every generation of humanity because of the fall right because of our human nature. Uh, we are naturally predisposed to injustice. Uh, by our depravity in the fall, and the only thing that changes that in us is uh, a, the regenerative work of Christ, the redemption that comes from Christ Jesus, where He takes out that, <coughs> excuse me, that uh, sinful heart of stone, and He puts in that heart of flesh. He gives us this the new birth, right? He gives us a brand new nature. That's the only thing that changes the natural inclination of humanity, and that's the problem a lot of times with our world today. Is that we have a we have a wrong or misunderstood uh, eschatology? I mean, not eschatology, but anthropology, uh, because there are so many people in our world today. When the the predominant thought seems to be that humanity is basically good. And because humanity is basically good, it is the in- environment around them, it is, is the nurture that they have that causes them, it's something outside of them that causes them to act in the way they do when we see people act in sinful, harmful, violent ways. And so the reality of the Bible is that, no, it's, it's not that humans are inherently good. It's exactly the opposite of that. Because of the fall, hum- humans are inherently evil we're inherently wicked Uh, when we think about the idea of our will our our, our, we are free to choose but we're free to choose according to our nature and our nature apart from the redeeming work of Jesus Christ is evil and wicked and so uh, in that sense we ought not be surprised that's the next phrase in this passage when you see this kind of oppression when you see this kind of violence or injustice or unrighteousness in in the world in any province he says do not be amazed at the matter we we ought not be amazed that that is there. We ought to understand that because of the, the fall of humanity, that there is going to be injustice, there's going to be violence, there's going to be unrighteousness, there's going to be oppression. Now, that doesn't make it right, and that doesn't excuse it. We just need to know that because of the fall of human nature, that that is the reality of the world. Now, because of God's common grace, we're not as evil as we could be, right? God, in his common grace, restrains evil in this world. If he let us go to the full extent of our evil, every one of us would be uh, evil uh, to the fullest extent and perp- do things that are horrific and and you can just plug in the blank of what people might do. We see it in some people from time to time. Well, that would be all of us if God didn't restrain evil in this world. And it's only through, again, the the common grace of God that the world is not as evil as it could be. And it's only through the redeeming, regenerative work of Christ that any of us can be changed. That old nature uh, done away with and the new nature and the new uh, in, in imputed righteousness of Christ guide us and mold us and shape us and cause us to follow after um, the righteousness of God. So he said, "Don't be surprised when you see those things. You, you ought to expect those things. And again, it doesn't excuse it, and it doesn't mean that you and I, as individuals, especially uh, as Christians in particular, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't we shouldn't spur our culture toward biblical justice and biblical righteousness. We shouldn't call out our culture when oppression is rampant and we see it. We should be. You know, there's this battle in our in our, in, in, at least in Christian circles today, there's this, this battle over this issue, this elusive uh, issue of Christian nationalism, right? You've you probably heard that term. Those who are opponents of Christianity uh, always put really um, uh, catchphrases in there that will stir up people's emotion, like white Christian nationalism, right, or white supremacist Christian nationalism they'll add those kind of adjectives in there but really what has happened with the term Christian nationalism for the most part is it it in and of itself is used as a derogatory term and you know to be fair to those you know to be fair to those who um, are against this idea of Christian nationalism and and again whatever their definition of it is um, I get it there's there's America is in 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 a sense is not a Christian nation, and we can't legislate America to be a christian uh nation. Uh, I don't know that there is really a such thing as a Christian nation. There can be a nation that has a base that is based on Christian morals and values in which America was founded that way but i get it we we can't legislate christianity and we can't make everyone christian because of our of our laws but what what's the alternative to this idea? Should we, as Christians, since we can't legislate Christianity and since we can't force be people to be Christians, do we just sit back and let secular humanism take over the world? Do we just sit back and let the the whatever injustices or whatever uh relative moral aspects of society you know rule? Do we just sit back and do nothing? No. I don't think God's called us to that at all. All you got to do is look at, you know, the the Hebrew people when they went into captivity in the Book of Daniel. What what did they do? They impacted their culture. At least the ones we read about, they impacted their culture. Right? They they pushed their culture on the issue of um, biblical moral value and truth and on what true uh, religion was. What well, who the true God was. They stood up for their beliefs in the face of government. And for them, it it was even more dangerous than for us because, you know, like Daniel, what happened to him? He was thrown in the lion's den. So the the punishment for Daniel was essentially a death sentence. God spared him from that. And the three uh, Hebrew young men, you know, because they wouldn't bow as the culture de- demanded them to bow to the idol, to, to the statue. What, what was their sentence? Their sentence was essentially the death penalty. Now, God spared them from that, but what did they do? They said, hey, king, there's no need for us to even answer you on this question. We're not going to bow. We're going to stand on our beliefs and on our convictions, uh, and we're going to stand true with the God of Israel, the one true and living God, and if it costs us our life, it costs us our life. If God spares us, then praise be God. He spares us to continue to stand, and you and I live in in the freest country in all the world, and we ought to stand up, and we ought to we ought to foster, we ought to push for Christian moral values in this country. We ought to elect people who go to office that will um, legislate in ways that mirror Christian moral values. If if we're not here, if, if that's not part of why God has left us here on planet Earth. Then why, why doesn't he just go ahead and take us home whenever he saves us? Right? Why don't he just only take us to glory? There is some level we we need to push back in the culture, understanding that the only true answer to uh, the problems in our culture is that people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's on an individual level. That, that's not a national thing. A nation can't get saved, but individual people in a nation can get saved. And when those individual people in a nation get saved, it ought to impact how they live. It ought to impact uh, how they relate to the culture around them. And so I think by... By natural design, when we become followers of Christ, we ought to push for, uh, or we ought to challenge a culture that is in opposition to uh, biblical moral values. So, you know, what others like Dr. Bodybakham said, what other kind of nationalism do you want? You want secular humanist nationalism? Do you want, you know, satanic nationalism? What other kind of nationalism nationalism do you want? Somebody has an idea of nationalism that they want, right? Those who are opposed to Christianity, they got a particular kind of nationalism that they want. Well, I've got a worldview, and my worldview says that we ought to live according to the moral values of Scripture, and we as believers ought to advocate for that in society. That's part of the function of the moral code of God, and that is to restrain evil, and that is built into uh, the legislative legislative aspect of a government, that they would legislate in light of the moral constructs that are found in the moral code of God and require people uh, to follow after that kind of morality, whether they are believers or not. The moral code of God is binding on all believers. So all that to say, don't be surprised when you see people do evil things, when oppression and injustice and unrighteousness is done in this world, because that's the nature of fallen humanity. But those of us who are Christians, those of us who have been redeemed, those of us who are the people of God, we, we ought to push for moral, biblical, moral, values, uh, in a society by the way we live. And by the way we, uh, vote and by the way we legislate. And so, uh, he goes on to say that, Hey, there, there are people that are looking, right? He says, don't be surprised about this matter. Don't be amazed about it for higher officials, uh, for a higher, for the higher official is watching by watched by a higher one. And there are yet higher ones over them. So he's, He's drawn in on this nature of government that they're, you know, whoever your governor is, there's somebody that watches over them, right? you you got a hierarchy of rulers in this world and and people all all – absolute power corrupts absolutely right in in every level of um, in every level of governance in our world, whatever the level all the way to the highest level you can imagine in human government governance, we have seen the impact of the fall of man in the sinfulness and oppression and injustice and unrighteousness, and on the rarest of occasion we see those who actually um do govern and live in light of the righteousness of God. And we praise the Lord uh, for those. All right, so verse 9. It says, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to uh, cultivated fields. Now that's an interesting verse, and, and a lot of people couple it with verse 8 because it's in the same paragraph that we're reading. And there's a negative and a positive way to look at this verse okay and the positive way of looking at this verse is that the best defense against government corruption is a godly king and if we look at it from that positive aspect then what would what should our role be in America in particular if you take our cultural context and make application to this in our cultural context what does that mean for the 21st century believer if the if the best defense against uh government corruption is a godly king or godly ruler as Americans what ought we to do as Christian Americans we ought to vote for people who at least say that they are Christian at least say that they adhere to the godly moral uh, righteousness found in the moral code of God if that is a positive thing for our culture and not a negative thing and it guards against corruption then we ought to uh, foster that in our society. He, uh, he goes on to say this. I, got, uh, I forgot, I didn't write down the commentary name, but uh, this is from a commentary. I didn't make this up. So society needs a ruler with wisdom like Solomon, someone who values economic freedom, uh, who encourages his people to uh, prosperity by cultivating their own fields. And again, I think uh, economic freedom, Maybe a little bit of an anachronistic uh, construct to put back on this particular text because this person probably is an American that's reading it in the sense of our, um, you know, o- economic freedom we have, or so called right now in America. But there is this sense that a person has you know, the right to private property, and they have the right to cultivate their own fields, and they have the right to the fruit of that produce, they have the right to sell that produce, understanding that the government's going to come in and take whatever percentage they um, deemed necessary to run uh, the government, to govern the people, or to take care of the leadership, that's all involved in it, but uh, a a good king uh, looks for the best for his people and part of the best for his people is to facilitate an environment where they can cultivate their own fields they can they they can be successful in the business venture that they have um they have decided to follow after for solomon though there was an agrarian society for america for a long time it was primarily agrarian we see still farmers out there we see people who have cattle and those kinds of things and that's part that that is their livelihood but for the most part in america it is more um I was, I was about to say industrial. It is somewhat industrial, even though most of our industry has gone overseas. Uh, but it's still American companies that are overseas <laughs> building these things and selling them back over here. But <clears throat> we we do have you know technology, you know digital aspects that uh, are part of our economic system as well. So a good king, a, a godly king, will foster an environment would govern in such a way that would guard against injustice and unrighteousness and oppression uh, and allow those people to labor in that field of uh, you know, their occupation in order to succeed. And if they succeed, then the nation succeeds. And then there's a negative side to look, the way to look at this. And the negative way is that the profit of the land is taken by all, even the king, right? So, in other words, hey, everybody's watching. If we go back to verse 8, right, there's a higher king, and uh, there's a king. Or there's a higher ruler, and there's a ruler above the, high, the other that ruler, and everybody's got their hand in your pocket, right? And now we see we see the negative side of that in our country as well, right? We see the negative side of Uncle Sam having his hand in your pocket every time you get a paycheck, right? Every time you get a paycheck, some portion of it is taken out to give to the government. So in in that sense, they come and take, and again, some of that is somewhat legitimate for us to participate in the governance of society and participate in helping maintain things that need to main, be maintained in a corporate way, but it seems as though, though when people get into power, a lot of times they take advantage of that and they continue to dig deeper and deeper. Just take, for instance, our country, not to wax too political on these things, but just take, for instance, our country. We, we, no, we no longer have a budget in our nation. We no longer have a balanced budget. We don't, we don't work from a balanced budget. What we do is we overextend ourselves and have been overextending ourselves as a nation for all of my lifetime that's why you always hear about you know we've 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 reduced this many trillion dollars from the deficit, or we've, you know, the other administration added this many trillions of dollars to the deficit. Well, the key word in all of those statements is deficit, right? Uh-huh. We are in the hole, and we keep borrowing money. That's why the, there's this whole battle all the time in in the, in the Washington, D.C. about the shutting down of the government, you know, and they have to, what do they do? They don't balance a budget. They don't rein in their spending. They don't cut things that they don't need uh, to to be spending on. They don't try to make government smaller and live within the means that they have in the tax revenue that they we can generate in this country. No, what do they do? They say, hey, we gotta raise our debt limit so we can borrow more money so we can be continue to give out all of these handouts and and, you know, continue to function this bloated government. Uh, so we we we, we will we will never catch up in my lifetime unless something drastic happens, and probably never in the lifetime of my children. We, we, will, we will borrow ourselves into oblivion unless something else happens, and it goes into the greedy aspect of the way government is done in our society. So enough about that side of it, but that's kind of the negative aspect of it, that there are corrupt kings, there are you know corrupt rulers who, who are greedy for, for gain, and they do whatever they need to do to, to get the gain. They need to get right and again i don't know most of those people personally i don't know any of them personally really i know of a lot of them because they're part of our state or i've just been hearing about them a lot of, for many years but it is really really something to see that people go in there and the money that they make as a congressman a senator or even the president president and what they go in with as a net worth and what they come out with as a net worth it is just astonishing to me um that that math um uh, adds up like it does. Now, here's 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 my thoughts on the ultimate fulfillment of this. The ultimate fulfillment of a godly king who rules in true righteousness and justice, obviously, is Jesus Christ. Isaiah nine six and seven. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end on the throne of david or and over his kingdoms to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness for from this time forward Uh, Forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of Hosts will do this. So ultimately, the only way we we will really see true, undefiled justice and righteousness in leadership, in government leadership, is when the when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords returns, and that is Jesus, Jesus the Christ. But in the meantime, we can pray that the Lord would raise up an oasis of that kind of leadership, uh, even in our world uh, today. And so that leads us to the next section. Uh, really, I think uh, the, next, the first section was 8 and 9, dealing with this idea of injustice. And then the, the rest of the chapter deals with the issue of the vanity of wealth. And there are several uh, aspects of this vanity that Solomon brings out, that Koheleth, the preacher, brings out about this vanity of wealth. So in verse 10, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And again, we've seen this kind of language before with Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Uh, Money money can buy a lot of things, right? It it can even buy some limited sense of um, momentary happiness and joy and peace and comfort. But the reality is, if if it is in money alone that you think you can find your joy, your satisfaction, your fulfillment, uh, and that which ultimately will sustain you and satisfy you in life completely, then you are sorely mistaken. All you have to do is look at all of the miserable Hollywood elites that have more money than anyone could ever spend in all of their life and see how many of them are absolutely miserable in their relationships and in their life. And so uh, we see that in an anecdotal way, that money will never bring true ultimate satisfaction. And I've said this over and over again, uh, and I'll say it again. We, we've got to come to the place in our life where we find true and ultimate satisfaction in God and God alone, right? In, in Christ and Christ alone. We, we've got to find our satisfaction, our self-worth, our fulfillment in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Anything outside of that uh, will never satisfy us. It will never fulfill us. It will always be vanity. It will always be lacking and wanting. But there are so many people in this world. Again, nothing wrong with having money. If the Lord gives you uh, you know, a truckload of money. Well, praise God, He's blessed you with a truckload of money. Then pray to God that you can you can learn how to handle that responsibility, right? Because with that great wealth comes great responsibility and great temptation. And we need God's help to help us manifest that. And the same thing with great poverty. If we have great poverty, that comes with great temptation as well, right? And we need God's help to manage that situation as well. And what we have to do is we have to get to the place in order for us to come to a way of living where we're not, we're not, we're not trying to gain self-worth and satisfaction or um, peace or contentment or security from merely money. Is We've got to come to the place where we trust the provision of God for our life. I get it. Easy preaching hard living. I understand that. But that's the place we ultimately have to get to. So he goes on. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. And so he goes into verse 11 and gives us some reasons why it is that people can never be satisfied with merely the pursuit of money, or the pursuit of wealth. Verse 11 says first, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So in other words, hey, the more you have, the more people come to get it, right? They, They rise up out of the woodwork to come to get it. We've already talked about one, and that's Uncle Sam, right? All you got to do is look at your paycheck every week. If you get paid biweekly or weekly or monthly or whatever it is, or at the end of the year uh, when you do your taxes, all you have to do is look at how much Uncle Sam has reached into your coffer and said, that is mine. And he takes that out of your uh, coffer for you and spends it on whatever you know trivial thing that he thinks it needs to be spent on And you have ultimately, even though we send representatives up there, sometimes it seems like we have no say in what they're spending money on, right? So Uncle Sam comes, right? You got, hey, think about all these people who, uh, I forget what it was lately, it was several uh, billion dollars or whatever, $1.7 billion. I forget what the the lottery was, the big one that the one guy won uh, recently. Just think about how many people was going to come out and say, hey, good buddy, good friend. Uh, all right, let me hold two till I see old Lou. Let me ten till I see you again. Uh, he'll have a lot of people coming out of the woodwork, uh, that uh, long-lost relatives that he hadn't seen in all of his life, uh, trying to come and, and take a little piece of what uh, it is that he has, he has gained. And so whether it's acquaintances or strangers or robbers or whatever it is, the more you have, the more people come after it. And so you're constantly trying to defend whatever it is that you have. And again, that's not saying that there's anything wrong with having a lot. If God blesses you with a lot, praise the Lord. He blesses you with a lot, but there's a lot of people who are coming after that lot that you have. And then number verse twelve, and this is the second reason he says that people can't will never be satisfied with money. He says, "Sweet is the sleep of a laborer who, whether he eats little or much." All right. So the idea is, this particular guy. Is just your average Joe. For us, to use our vernacular, blue collar worker, right? Who makes enough to meet his needs, maybe. Or maybe he's struggling just a little bit, right? Because. There's one example of one who eats a lot right he's got plenty his belly's full he's not the richest man in the in the in the kingdom but he's got what he needs to survive and live and he works hard for it he labors hard so whenever he comes home he's he's beat from the labor he's tired from the labor his stomach's full and he's ready to rest and he sleeps like a baby right he has no well I'll say no worries he has minimal worries in life uh, and then there's the one who labors hard uh, and sh- Bill struggles to get by because he might not have everything he needs to eat every day. He might go to bed hungry uh, every now and then. But because of his hard work and his hard labor, um, he still sleeps like a baby because he just wore out from uh, the labor. And the, the implication that Solomon is making in this is that with wealth comes great stress. For the protection of that wealth or the guarding of that wealth or, you know, the managing of that wealth. Whereas with little wealth, maybe not as much stress comes again. You got to take it all of that, you know, it's it's not a proverb, it's not a law. Uh, You know, I know there's still stress in people's life who don't make a lot of money. Sometimes it seems like there's more stress, but the problem is. Uh, the point is that the person who works hard for his labor, as opposed to maybe the person who um, is, a, is a is a lazy wealthy person that doesn't work hard for his labor. I'm not saying that all wealthy people are that way. It's not what Solomon's saying, but he's making that kind of contrast. It seems to me. He says, "But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep, and the reason is is because he's worried about those riches." You know he's contemplating those riches, you know I couldn't help but think of the rich young ruler when I read this passage because that this is this this is him to at right he he comes to the Lord, he says, "Hey, good teacher." Uh, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says to him, "One, why do you call me good? Uh, there's only one who is good, and that's God. So the point is, uh, one, you have a misconception about uh, yourself, is what Jesus was telling him. I think if you look at humanity and you say, you know, that uh, humanity can be good, but we know Jesus is God, right? Second person of the Trinity. So the second aspect of that is, hey, are, are you you uh, you equating me with God, right? Uh, and that that's the idea. Jesus was God, so he was the only good. Uh, human being to ever exist uh, on planet earth. Uh, the only perfect human being. Uh, but this rich young ruler thought he was perfect as well. He thought he was good because listen to how Jesus answered that question to him. He says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, Hey, you know, the commandments go do the commandments. He says, well, I've done those all of my life. Well, that was the biggest, you know, overstatement uh, of, the, of the dialogue, because there's no way he done them all of his life. There's no way anybody could do them all of their life, because every one of us are going to fail at trying to accomplish the moral code of God. And when I'm talking about the moral code of God, Jesus was talking about the Ten Commandments, right? Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And, and those are meted out in the Ten Commandments, those two summary statements. And there's no way he could have done that all of his life. There's no way that you can do that all of your life, or I can do that all of my life. Jesus did. He's the only one who did. But no other human being could ever do that in their life. And so the the guy was already delusional about his level of goodness, right? Uh, He had that misunderstood anthropology. He thought he was good when he was actually wicked and evil. And then Jesus challenged him on that. He says to him, Well then, go there's one thing that you lack. Go sell everything you have and come follow me. And the Bible says that the man left, you know, sorrowful. You know, it's so like he hung his head and just walked away. Why? Because he had great riches, the Bible says. Well what was what was the implication of that? Well this man loved his riches. He had a covetous relationship with money, it seems. In in that one statement the Lord showed him that you're not as good as you think you are. And so the, I couldn't help but think of the rich young ruler in that way. He loved his wealth, and his, his heart and mind was consumed with that wealth. And this is the kind of person I think that Solomon is talking about uh, in, in this picture that we see in verses 11, verse, verse 11 and verse 12. Uh, so money will not bring satisfaction money will ultimately, great wealth will ultimately bring uh, more issues and more struggles for most people, okay? Then verse 13, he goes on. says, This is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. You know, again, that sounds just like the rich young ruler hoarding on to this thing. Um, these Those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. So he had the world, so to speak, by the tail. He had all the riches that one could ever dream for, and he hung on to those riches uh, to his own hurt to the point that he ultimately lost everything because of the way he managed those riches, and now he doesn't even have anything to leave to his children. He has no inheritance, no legacy to leave uh, to them. He goes on in verse 15, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, shall uh, and shall take nothing for his toil uh, that he may carry away in his hand. This is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? And I think there's a shift in this uh, picture a little bit. Because the great reality is, I don't don't care how rich you are, I I don't care how well you've invested it and how well you've managed it and how big your portfolio is or what inheritance you have to give to your children. The long and short of it is, you're not taking one dime of that with you when your time to cross through the doorway of death comes. You're not taking one dime of your money with you. You're not taking one dime of your assets with you. You're not taking one dime of your wealth with you. They will do you absolutely no good in the hereafter. All right? You're not going to stand before God based on your check, checking account, or your Roth IRA, or your your 401k, or your portfolio, or, or whatever it is. You're not going to stand in front of God and find justice, or, or find um, uh, your sins covered because of how wealthy you are. You, you can't take any of that with you anyway, and, it, and it, no matter if you did, that's not what determines uh, your status with God. And so, well, there's nothing wrong with having wealth, and nothing wrong with working to leave an inheritance for your children, and and be able to live a life that because uh, that money has afforded you to live in the sense that you can buy things and you can live in ways that you couldn't live if you have uh, you you have the the savings or the backdrop that money and security that money can provide. But if you live in such a way that it is money that you're seeking after, and it is that security you find in money that you're seeking after, the ultimate conclusion of that is it's all going to go to somebody else anyway. And it's not going to help you when when it's all said and done, when you cross into um, eternal life. And even if you leave it to your children, you can't take it with you. And if they get it, they may squander it, they may manage it well, but they're not going to be able to take it with them. What Solomon's trying to tell us is, There is ultimately a greater purpose for life. And there is a greater source of fulfillment and satisfaction and security in life. And that comes with a relationship with God. And our life ought to be structured such that our relationship with God, who we are in Christ as as followers of Christ, dictates how we live in this world. And that ought to govern how we relate to money, how we relate to other people, how we relate to our uh, employer or employers to employees, how we relate to our children, how we relate to our spouse, how we relate to the world of education, how we relate to the world of economics, whatever it is that we encounter in this life. Our focus ought to be on honoring and glorifying and pleasing God because we are his children. And then those other things ought to come under uh, and be subordinate to our relationship with the Lord. So whatever wealth we accumulate in our life, whether a lot or little, we ought to use it to advance the kingdom of God, to bring glory and honor to the name uh, of Almighty God in whatever way God helps us to, uh, to accomplish that. I had a quote from Luther here, I was reading it, contemplating on whether I ought to read it, but I will. Martin Luther said this, he said, As I shall forsake my riches when I die, so I forsake them while I am living. And I think Jesus talks about this idea of money. We can't serve two masters, right? We can't serve God and mammon. We love the one and hate the other. And The idea is we must serve God. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these other things will come under the subordination of our relationship with God, and we'll have a proper relationship with things, right? With money or whatever possessions we have, we'll have a proper relationship with them. We'll have a proper perspective on our other relationships in relation to our, our relationship uh, with, with the Lord. So if the Lord blesses you with a lot, praise God that he blessed you with a lot. Use that use that to to serve him, use that to bless other people use that to advance the kingdom of God use that to bring glory and honor to his name use that to share with your children to share with your family you know, in what whatever capacity the Lord you know calls you to use that use it ultimately to bring glory and honor to him but don't let it be don't let it be become your god we've got to be like paul right Paul had the proper proper perspective on the issue of God's providence in his life, God's provision in his life. Paul, you know, we, we take this verse out so so out of context, right? We, we say, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And we usually apply that to things that Paul didn't apply it to. We take it out of the context in which Paul used it, right? Uh, I can do whatever, whatever. I get on. You know, I think I used this as an example before. I can get on this tall building and I can jump off and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, you know, that's a ludicrous example, but sometimes that's the way we use those kinds of verses. I call it t-shirt theology or bump sticker theology. The context of that statement that Paul made, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, was the context of financial stability. He said... I know what it is to have plenty, right? I know what it is to have a lot. I know what it is to have to manage a lot and have to live in light of the struggles and temptations and pressure that comes with having a lot. And then Paul says, I know what it is to be a base. I know what it is to have very little. I know what it is to go to bed hungry. And I know what it is to feel the temptations and pressures that come with going to bed hungry and not having enough money that seems to take care of the needs of my life. But then Paul says, whether I have a lot or whether I have a little, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Paul had a proper perspective on God's provision for his life. He trusted God first and foremost, whether he had a lot or whether he had a little, his faith was centered in God. His, his satisfaction was centered in God. And he can live in either one of those places with faithfulness and uh, to God no matter the circumstances in which you live and, and we we've, we've got to come to that place right we've got to come to that place in our life verse 17 he continues with this vanity of wealth he said moreover all his days meaning this rich man who who has this this plenty that he can't take with him. It says moreover, all his days he eats and drinks in much vexation and sickness and anger. Why? Because he's so worried about something happening to this wealth that he has. And I could not, th- I could not help but think about Ebenezer Scrooge. Right? Uh, maybe it's because Christmas is just around the corner. But it, wasn't that Ebenezer Scrooge's problem? Right? He was lived in vexation and sickness and anger because he was so worried about the accumulation of that or that wealth that he had accumulated and he was hoarding that stuff up right uh listen what Derek Kidner said he says if there is anything worse than the addiction money brings it is the uh emptiness that it leaves and that's the danger of it right People, you try to follow after money as that thing that brings them satisfaction and security in their life, and it just leaves them empty because the only true satisfaction and security in life comes from a relationship with Almighty God. Verse 18 Behold, (coughs) excuse me. (coughs) Verse 18 Behold, what I have seen to be good and fit is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot, right? And so, we, we've seen this before, right? We, we've we seen this kind of language before. So, what, what have we seen? We've seen Solomon tell us over and over again, hey, we are but a blip on the timeline of history, right? History in and of itself compared to eternity is just a drop in the bucket, right? And so uh, for us, you know, if God blesses us, you know, 75, 80 years, some people maybe 100, just over 100 years. If he blesses us, 100 years is nothing in the timeline of, of history in this, in this world, right? And so we have very limited days on planet Earth. And so you and I must find enjoyment on planet Earth. So how is it that we can ultimately find enjoyment in the few days that we have on this planet? How is it that we can make the most of these few days that we have on this planet? Well, we find it in God. We find it in serving God and loving God and, and being obedient to God and honoring him with the work that we do, with the money that we earn, uh, with the life that he's given us. And that's the second aspect of this passage. Who is it that has given us these few days that we have on this earth? It is Almighty God who's given us these days that we have on this earth. Our life is a gift from God. So see, Solomon already, even though it seems morbid and it seems as though... Uh, Uh, You know, he's always in a depressed mood. Solomon is always pointing us in Ecclesiastes to fulfillment that we find in God. He's always pointing us to the answer that our life is a gift from God. And we ought to live this life as if it were a gift from God. And we ought to use every moment that God has given us on this earth to to glorify Him and honor Him. And in doing so, we will find fulfillment and satisfaction and value in the life that God uh, has given us. That's where our ultimate contentment comes from. Our relationship with God and understanding that it's because of God that we have the breath that we have. It is in Christ that we live and breathe and move and have our being. And we ought to live in light of that and not let the circumstances of this world dictate how we feel and dictate you know our emotion I get it easy preaching hard living I understand when the world's caving in around you and the walls are falling down on you it, it is a terrible thing but for those of us who are Christian, we can see through the travesty and we can see the light of the hope that is in Christ uh, That that is yet before us and we can live in light of that even in these few days that we have and the, and the other side of that coin is you and I need to understand we have but few days on planet earth. As Christians, let us not waste those days. Let us be serious about following after uh, God and following after uh, the kingdom of God and sharing the gospel with those who are lost because it is their only hope because they only have few days on planet earth. And so let us find our fulfillment and our satisfaction in God and God alone. And live our life to the glory of God. And then he finishes up in verses 19 and 20. says, everyone also to whom God has given wealth. Another thing, wealth and possession and power. If you have wealth and possession and power, you, under, you ought to understand the only reason you have any of those things is because God has allowed you to have any of those things, right? You need to understand it's a gift from God, the wealth, the power, the, the possessions that you have and then you will have a proper perspective about those wealth power and positions. And he goes on to say, uh, let me just start over. Everyone to everyone also everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. <coughs> this is the gift of God. Now that one statement, that one phrase and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. that's a hard place to live, right? As as J. Vernon McGee would often say, that's where the rubber meets the road right there. And that goes back to us trusting God. Trusting the God who has given us the gift of life. Trusting the God who has planted us where he has planted us. Trusting the God who has mapped out the days of our life, who's laid out the steps of our life. Trusting him in the lot and the toil that he has laid out for us. I get it. He's a preaching hard living. I know I keep saying that tonight, and that's a that's a that's a reality. But at some point or another we have to come to the place that we trust God. And we trust him more than we trust than we trust the circumstances. We trust him beyond what the circumstances say to us. Verse twenty for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. (coughs) Excuse me. Good gravy. And the point is, if we can live our life in light of the relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ, if we can live our life in the understanding that what we have in this life is a gift from God, every day that God gives us is a gift for him, right? And if we can live our life in that way, we will be so consumed with the joy and the satisfaction and the fulfillment that we find in being faithful and honoring God in the in the path that God has laid out for for us then the circumstances of our life will not control us right they will not control um the joy and fulfillment we have in our life and again I get it that that doesn't mean that there won't ever be pain and there won't ever be suffering and we won't ever feel the pain and the suffering in life we we're definitely going to feel those things right even Jesus wept when Lazarus had died right So he felt those pains of life. He felt what it felt like to be hungry, just like you feel what it feels like to be hungry. He felt what it feels like to be alone and isolated when everyone had left him, just like you may feel that way sometimes in your life. He felt all of those things, but he understood the greater purpose for which he was on planet Earth right? And that's why he prayed the way he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what was before him. I don't know everything that's before me in this this earthly life. I know what's awaiting for me um, whenever I uh, leave this life through death or whenever Jesus comes again. I I know the hope that I have then, but I don't know what's in store for me tomorrow. I can only... Contemplate based on things that have happened to me in the past and the pattern of life that I'm in right now. I can contemplate things that might happen tomorrow. I can plan out things that might happen tomorrow, but I don't know. But Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into. He knew exactly that he was about to go to a cross. He was about to be tried. He was about to be beaten. He was about to be crucified as a criminal. And Yet and still, when he was on the Garden of Gethsemane, understanding the weightiness of it, right? Not just necessarily the physical part, but the greater spiritual part of bearing the weight of the sinfulness of humanity. That's the second person of the Trinity. He prayed to the Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me, right? And he agonized over what was about to happen. Sweat drops mingled with blood, right? But then he concluded, not my will but your will be done. And that's the way we've got to live our life, Lord, or to the Lord. That's what we've got to live our life. Is Lord, not my will, your will be done. And find our satisfaction in in him, in him alone, and trust him no matter what the circumstances look like in our life, right? Trust him, even if we're Job, sitting in a pile of ashes, mourning the total devastation of our life, Right? Trust him as Job trusts. Now that didn't, did Job have questions? Absolutely, he did. But did Job ever lose his faith in God? No, he didn't. And, and that's the way we've got to live our life. I get it. Easy preaching, hard living. But at some point or another, we as believers in Christ need to need to ask God to help us have that kind of faith, to help us have that kind of trust, that kind of. Find that kind of fulfillment and satisfaction in who He is and in the relationship that we have with Him so that no matter what the circumstances look like in our life, that we trust Him. So, that's where Solomon's driving us to, right? And we see glimpses of it all along the way. And he'll continue to bring us on this ebb and flow and, uh, this, this under the sun and vanity aspect. But just remember, he's always pointing us to the end. The true meaning and value in life comes from following after and being faithful to God. That's where we find value and meaning in life. And that's where we got to live. We got to live in, in light of that. Well, hopefully that was beneficial to you. Um, and again, if hey, go find us on the podcast, it'll be on our RK Ministries podcast wherever podcasts are available. Uh, like it, subscribe it, share it, uh leave comments, uh um give a good review and then find us on youtube it's obviously if you're watching on facebook you found us if you're watching on youtube right now you found us but like and subscribe and share and 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 leave a good review in those places as well if you don't have a church home and you're in the elmore county area uh, close to tallacy you know if you're within 20 30 minute uh 50 minute (laughs) driving range uh, you want to come to a place where we Teach God's word in an expository way, verse by verse chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. Right now, we're we're in the Gospel of John. Uh, I don't even know how many sermons we've preached so far, but we're still in Chapter 1. Uh, I know I had to add, I didn't finish Chapter 1 last, or the I didn't finish the sermon last week. I had to stop on the first point, so we finished that up today. So right now, we're up to 100 sermons we're going to have in the Gospel of John. So that's almost two years that we're going to be in the Gospel of John, and that's the way we go at Scripture. Obviously, there'll be times in there when we may, we may veer from John from time to time, but we're We're going to come right back to it and pick up right where we left off and we'll continue to do that. And again, I didn't do my theology Thursday today, but just another advertisement. For uh, family-driven faith, if you haven't gotten that book, go find that book, read that book. Uh, and I think the other one, the, the companion to that is a Family Shepherd, you can find that. But we are about, at Friendship Baptist Church, we are about family integration. We are about what we believe is the biblical model for church, where we... Focus in on the construct of the nuclear family, and that's not to say people who don't fit that mold are not welcome there. You are welcome there, and I know in our society, nuclear family is a is a is a thing that is very rare nowadays, right? Uh, and, and so, uh, but that's God's created order and His created design. We don't do age graded separation. We believe that fathers should, and that families should sit together and worship together and and study together, and that fathers should be the spiritual leaders of their home and moms should come alongside of the, their fathers and help them in that role and that they should they should be the primary disciples of their children and so when we do Sunday school that's the way we do Sunday school as families uh, and we sit in church as families uh, and we worship that particular way and the older ladies have an impact on the younger ladies and the older men have an impact on the younger men as, the, as Paul instructed uh, Timothy to foster in, in the first century church as he was uh, leading uh, in those areas that Paul had left him to lead, and so that's kind of our philosophy that's kind of our our design and our goal is to fortify uh, god's created order on the nuclear family the fundamental governing um organization organism uh in created in the created order began with the family and that that's what we want to foster. Uh, there at Friendship Baptist Church. So if that strikes your fancy, then come join us, and uh, we'd we'd love to have you. Don't forget about revival November the fifth through the eighth uh, at seven p.m. Sunday through Wednesday, uh, and we, we'd love to have you there. Be praying for revival. We're going to have a we're going to have a an evening of prayer for revival on November the first uh, at six o'clock at Friendship Baptist Church. So if you're in the area and you want, you want to participate in that, then come join us at six o'clock on November the first. That first Wednesday of November. We will have an evening evening of prayer just prior to our revival service, which will start that Sunday, that following Sunday, Sunday evening. So hope you'll join us for that. Invite your friends, invite your family. And if you don't know the Lord, don't go to bed tonight before throwing yourself on the mercy of Christ. If that's something that you need to talk about, uh, to need to understand what it means to be a follower of Christ, well, shoot me a message, shoot me a a comment, and I'd be glad to share with you uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So I'd love to talk to you about that. But until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you.